Hello and welcome to episode 81 of the Waters Wavelength podcast. My name is Anthony Malakian. I'm the US editor of Waters... What? <laughs> Fine. Anthony's away this week. My name is James Rundle. I'm the news editor of Waters and I'm joined by Mia David, our US reporter. Hi. Hi, Mia. <laughs> uh, this week we're going to talk about a couple of things. <laughs> that was the idea. There that we go. Was in media res, as they say in the film industry. Um, if you're quite finished, can we continue? Is that yes. right? Good. So this week we're going to talk about a couple of things, um, but maybe let's start with uh, fintech. Um, so one of the eternal questions <laughs> about fintech, I find, is regulation. Um, yeah. So this has kind of exploded over the last few years. Fintech has kind of creeped into all elements of the market. You know, have reg tech, you have insure tech, you have, um, I think I heard about prop tech the other day, for like property management, and any kind of <laughs> prefix you want, right? But I think it has some people concerns that maybe these companies are probably out of nowhere, they're becoming systemically important, or they're becoming um, vital to the functioning of trade life cycles. So there's been a couple of things out. The FSB, the Financial Stability Board, um, released a report, I think, at the end of June, saying that mm-hmm. you know there's no immediate risk, but there are areas of concern for the future and a systemic capacity for fintech. And I think RBC had a report out uh, not long after that said something like, you know, conventional measures for measuring and managing risk need to be reassessed. And yeah. So you're working on something similar. You know, yes, I am. Um, and it's also kind of interesting because it's not just in Europe. There's um, the SEC kind of talked about it a little bit, but it's mostly really the CFTC and the OCC is really um, uh, pursuing the kind of line of thought about regulating fintechs. This is the, the bank charter. Yeah, uh, for the OCC was the bank char- charter. For the CFTC, it was, they didn't really say we were going to regulate you. The CFTC was just like, come to us. We'll <laughs> make sure that you're within the lines of whatever we are regulating. Before you block the system. Before, yeah, right. before you... Before you do something that's going to ruin the industry, or not so, ruin, yeah. but you know. That's interesting. The CFTC has its, its CFTC Labs, right? I think that's yeah. its initiative. The SCA in the UK has its Project Innovate. I mean, we talk about sandboxes in the sense that the regulators like to talk on, like, oh, we're helping these companies, uh, you know, work within a regulated framework, all the rest of it. But do you think really there is that element of kind of looking at it saying, hmm, maybe we should keep an eye on these guys in a controlled situation? I've always thought that's what sandboxes really yeah. are. I mean, to be fair, no one really um, can ex- can really define what a sandbox is because it a sandbox in Singapore is totally different from the sandbox that's, that London has, for example. Really? In what ways? Uh, like di- just different explanations and definitions of what it is, but generally, I it's par- for me it is partly we're keeping an eye on you, but I think it's exactly what CFTC kind of wants is that they have this term, cautious innovation or responsible innovation, which sounds very counterproductive to mm-hmm. me. It's it's just like we're n- not regulating you yet. We're just watching you closely. Yeah, right. So parents at the play park, but you can go on the slide, but we are right here. Yeah, we're right here in case something happens. Yeah. Which I, I guess that makes sense. Uh, well, this is the thing. I was yeah, it makes sense. But I was also thinking about this from um, from a wider context as well. So it's not just the startups in fintech. You have the established guys yeah. as well. So and arguably, I guess they're way more systemic than fintechs ever are. So you yeah. your Bloomberg's, for instance, are in every trading floor in the world, yeah. pretty much. And you have, um, 
a lot of vendors providing back office support, uh, custody services, and what have you. And you know, I mean, there is an argument, I guess, saying that if they go down, then things are really quite yeah. screwed. I mean, you've talked to a couple of people already. What's been the reaction when you've been asking people around this? It's been, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Don't regulate this. <laughs> and then there's a pause. Right, okay. <laughs> and then I have to basically defend why I'm doing the story. Right. Um, which means if I do talk to you, I will be defending it again, but at least you know why I'm working on it. Yeah, and I think a lot of... Many vendors also developed their technology before there was interest in any regulation. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting why there's that interest from regulatory agencies now yeah. to look into how systemic a lot of fintechs are. And you're right, it's a lot of fintechs in the sense of startups, not just um, the, the whole gamut of what fintech means they're new mm-hmm. but and they haven't been really proven they're not they're not endemic in in yeah. bank systems so it's i guess it's probably fear of the new mm-hmm. so all of the all of the established vendors probably are still like maybe they're they didn't see that there would be an issue coming for them. Yeah, I mean there may be. There's been things written about that. So I guess our argument is that you know regulators are responsible for regulating yeah. products, right? And yeah. they're responsible for making laws. They're not necessarily responsible for regulating technology. Yeah, so because that is that is like one question I have is that should it be the regulators? Role mm-hmm. to to go into a bank, whatever the bank's choice is, yeah. on who they're going to partner with, who their vendor is going to be, or is it the bank themselves? Because they, if something goes wrong, they are the ones liable, not just legally or like in a compliance way, but also if something goes wrong, their systems go, uh, their systems go down. They can't reach customers. They can't do their business. Yeah. So. I don't know if, if regulators really can go, or yeah. should they be the ones going I guess going the impact in? as well. I mean, I remember last year, I think it was when Bloomberg went down for three hours, and you know, I was phoning around trading floors and talking to guys who were in there, just like, oh, this is great, we're going down the pub, it's 10.30 in the morning. <laughs> like, right, guys, yeah, sure, but, like, uh, guys, you know, come, yeah, come on. <laughs> also, it's 10.30 in the morning, guys. But anyway, it's an interesting oh, yeah. topic. Um, <laughs> if, you're, if you have any opinions on this, then feel free to contact Mia. Yep. She is working on this, um, so please do get in touch. Uh, for the next topic, I think, um, maybe talk a little bit about Brexit, which has come back into focus again. Yeah, so, I don't know if you've already seen, but well, yeah, so, a really good story. A really good story by uh, <laughs> a really talented, talented editor and reporter um, based in the New York newsroom. Uh, so yeah, I wrote a story um, this week just talking really about, not just about banks and where they're going to relocate after Brexit, um, which, spoiler alert, is probably going to be Frankfurt, but also how tech vendors are now starting to open up services in Frankfurt and starting to mirror the move as well, which I think is an interesting kind of aspect and underreported. I mean, more interesting, I think, is perhaps that even before negotiations are really underway, like, banks are already now picking this and going, right, okay, fine, we're going to go to Frankfurt. If you buy a side, you're probably going to go to Dublin or Luxembourg or whatever. But it's interesting in reading the story. It's, It's really the tech firms that are basically rolling, like, starting the ball rolling. Right, yeah. 
makes sense, of course, because there um, a lot of banks already have offices in Frankfurt or in Germany, in other cities in Germany. So it, it's interesting that they are already hiring or looking to hire a, a lot of people. Yeah, it's in almost Frankfurt. preempting the moves. And you yeah. wonder if it's a case of almost the tail wagging the dog in a way, saying, well, the infrastructure is being set up here, so yeah. here you go, guys, move in, you know. And Frankfurt probably needs, I don't know if you've ever been to Frankfurt. Um, I spent no. a week there last year and. I was told by somebody who lived there, the best thing about it is how quickly you can get out of Frankfurt. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a very small city. Um, it doesn't have a lot of um, infrastructure in the same way that London does, or like New York, or yeah. even like Dublin's not great, but even Dublin or Paris. Um, but yeah, uh, one of the headhunters I spoke to just said, you know, tech firms, she's already been approached by a number of people just saying, yeah. look, what are the kind of laws around employment there and around immigration, yeah. around property markets and that kind of thing. So it's interesting. It looks like there are clear kind of winners and losers coming. Um, the biggest loser, of course, being London, London. itself. Um, I think there was a report by Oliver Wyman at the end of last month that said um, not only is it going to cost the industry around a billion dollars to move all this stuff to wherever they want to go, mm -hmm. but London in the long term might lose something like 40,000 of its wholesale banking jobs, which is yeah. around roughly half the headcount. Can you just imagine they built up that whole Canary Wharf area? For financial services. Yeah, literally reclaimed it from marshland. I mean, yeah. when I was a kid in London, it was just a hellhole. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's and then now it's crisis. like, okay, we're going to lose the, the people in the buildings yeah. that go around here. So. And not, not just that, I guess. I mean, the, the I guess the wider corollary from this story is that everyone's focusing the amount of um, wholesale banking jobs and sales and trading, investment banking, yeah. what have you, they're going, control functions like compliance. But actually the wider ecosystem is a lot bigger than that so the impact of jobs mm -hmm. might be a lot wider if you get financial tech vendors going lawyers consultants things like that yeah. it could I be mean, a bigger it, impact yeah. it's almost as if brexit was a really bad idea like who'd almost, have thought? As <laughs> almost as if almost as because you know <laughs> yeah. sounded good in paper uh, I guess 50% of my countrymen thought so. Yeah. Um, maybe not myself. <laughs> I mean, there was a bus that said it was fine. There was, was a bus going that said it was to be fine. Okay. Which, oh, actually, you know what? We don't talk enough about that bus and the, let's be honest, lies that were on the front of it. Um, I think there might have been some fines, but yeah, that, anyway, Brexit. Bad idea. You're reaping what you say, guys. Um, enjoy Frankfurt. <laughs> it's just, I, uh, I, my roommate did say once that. I was watching a show and it was about Frankfurt and she was like, why Frankfurt? It's a boring city. Mm. I was like, okay. <laughs> yeah, the thing is it is a boring city, but it does have the European Central Bank there. It has Deutsche Börse, mm -hmm. it's in Eschborn, which is a suburb just outside of Frankfurt. Um, it has Deutsche Bank there. Those yeah. two massive towers, which I think are credit and debit, which just makes me... Just that sounds so un-German. So un-German, right? Or <laughs> well, maybe very literal German. Who knows? You know, the two pillars of financial markets mm. are credit and debit. But um, yeah. Anyway, I pity the poor people that get told by the way your jobs moving to Germany. So brush up on that. But at least they'd have. Uh, this is not. I'm just sorry to say. At mm. least they'd have better beer. They do have better beer. In fact, uh, Germans actually have laws around the purity of their beer. See? Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm pretty sure they would gladly move for a better beer Although, at 10.30 a.m. when Bloomberg goes and down. When Bloomberg gets down at 10.30 a.m., yeah, we'll see. Um, and, uh, I mean, we talk about beer a lot on this podcast, and I actually disagree. I think America probably is the best beer now. But what? Yeah, we can tell it's Germans. I mean, I wouldn't know. <laughs> I do not drink beer. James and Tony know this. Yeah. I am not... We're what you might call experts in drinking beer. Um, Who are experts in drinking beer. Yep. I, however, do not like beer. Having grown up with a father who used to work in the beer industry, it didn't translate <laughs> to, through the generations. <laughs> yeah. 
I'm sorry. Well, that's enough about financial topics. Um, it's a bit of a slow week, as you might have guessed from this podcast. <laughs> but August, it's the summer holidays. But yeah, again, um, I'm interested in talking about this Brexit stuff. Um, if any of you guys listening know about anyone who's looking to move um, or have heard similar things, then please do get in touch and let me know. It's always good to have some validation reporting and can lead on to other stories. Um, let's talk about something fun. Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones. Uh, spoiler alert, obviously, if you have been a regular listener, you know that we're doing this weekly now um, in the build-up to the end, but pretty cool episode. Right. It, it is kind of... Weirdly, it's one of the best, but also one of the most frustrating episodes. In what way? It, it's... I expected a grander... Um, a re- I want to say reunion because they've never met each other. Mm-hmm. Like I was just expecting a grander like meeting between aunt and uncle. Spoiler alert: their aunt and uncle. Oh, between Daenerys and Jon Snow. Yeah, I did and love that bit though, where he's like, "This is Daenerys Targaryen, Umber, the sword." Yeah. The end of it's like it's Jon Snow. This is Jon Snow, king of the north. He's king of the north. <laughs> <laughs> there's a there's a meme going around of like a Starbucks cup with like. Daenerys Targaryen in all her oh, titles, yeah, yeah, and then Jon Snow, but with an H, and they misspelled it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you know, there was a bit kind of, I guess, if you're looking for fireworks as a letdown. But I quite like the tension throughout that whole scene. Like I didn't know because Daenerys, I think, over the last <laughs> six or seven episodes, has become a slightly different character. She's become a lot harder, like going into the aspect of being a conqueror. I, mean, I wasn't sure she was going to try and kill him or not, but like you know, I knew she was going to kill him. It was just. You know what the big reveal is going to be, though, right? She's going to have the dragon's torch, Jon Snow, and he's going to emerge unburnt from the flames, and they'll be like, brother, or nephew, or what have you. Brother. What about uh, that weird sexual tension, eh? <laughs> there is actually a theories that they're going to get married, in true Targaryen style, before finding uh, out their, um, you know, aunt and nephew. Yeah, I mean, it's hardly news to the show, is it? Yeah. I mean, literally in that episode as well, with Jamie yeah. and Cersei being I quite mean, out course. in the open. But, but like, that whole meeting, like... I guess I was hoping that John would be less sullen and yeah. more forceful. I can't expect Although much from Kit Harrington. From going, you brood better than I do. Yes. <laughs> See, th- I read somewhere that um, Tyrion had better chemistry with John than Daenerys did. Mm. So I think it. Yes, mm-hmm. I, did, I did kind of believe that a little, but. I don't know, because, like, my thing is, Daenerys is just, why do you think he's going to bend the knee to you? It just boggles the mind, but... Yeah, I I think they handled it pretty well. Um, We'll see how it goes from here. Lady Elena, pretty awesome. Ah, She's so... By the way, I killed your son. Cheers. I I love it, because she was like, oh, your son, he's... Horrible, right? So, yeah, well, that word that won't be repeated. <laughs> he was a real, wasn't he? Was, yeah, and the Jamie cool. just like was out and was like, yeah. Perfectly delivered. It's, it's just, you know. And it's also so amazing. She's like, I'm going. She, it wasn't so much a, it wasn't so much like her revenge against Cersei. It was basically just preying upon Jamie's kindness. Mm. Like, I talked her out of flaying you alive. I quite like Jamie. He's probably my favourite character in the show, actually. He is actually, I think, at heart a decent guy. But you know. a, a decent guy who, remember, pushed Bran off the tower. Apart from that one misstep. In the, yeah, actually, you're right. He's not a good guy. He's not way. a good guy. <laughs> but, but he is a fundamentally decent, He's, at least yeah. decent person. Like him and Tyrion are the two kind of characters you could root yeah. for in the show. I mean, they've both done horrible things. Mm. 
Um, arguably, Jamie has done more horrible things if you account Bran, but they're they're not Cersei. They they're yeah. they they do know what's wrong or right. They're not black and white in all of this. So it was really interesting to me that Elena wasn't. I felt that scene wasn't Elena trying to get one up on Cersei. She really just wanted to taunt Jamie. It's mm. like, look, he gave me a kindness, but you know what? Deep down, you know, if it was Tyrion who killed yeah. your son, it was, it was me. Proving a point that yeah, you still lose. Yeah, proving a point. She was so good in that. She was amazing. I'm and also, I want to point out, I think the internet's now stolen this from me since someone came out to it, but <laughs> Tyrion <laughs> at the bottom of Castle Rock, oh, building God. a chamber for his, uh, his female friends, <laughs> literally built a hodor. See? Hodor? No? There we go! You got it! <laughs> I started shouting that my wife was just like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> and why are you being so disrespectful? Oh, I was like, no, no, there's a whole history to it. Hold on. Oh, yeah. God. That was stupid, though, that whole Casterly Rock thing. Yeah, I thought when they finally brought Casterly Rock onto the show, you'd be like, wow. Then they I, I, I've been swearing this up and down to my roommates, um, because my roommates and I hold a weekly um, Game of Thrones night with our friends. Since... Since um, I think two weeks ago, when they unveiled this whole plan, I always thought that the decision to go to Casterly Rock was stupid, and it was just Tyrion's pride and his like revenge. Was like I'm gonna get this because it was denied me. Yeah. It's like it made zero sense to me because no, there's well, nothing made, in Casterly Rock anymore. It made anymore. total sense to like smash the Lannisters and take King's Landing at the same time, but yeah, then but you know not together. <laughs> Because Casterly Rock awesome. has no money. No. So it's like, what was the point? But it's the military power. That's the whole point. They're trying to break the back. Last is the military power of the Seven Kingdoms or the Seven Kingdoms. See, my um, thought with that is, knowing that King's Landing has depleted resources because you know half the city was blown up. Yeah. Why? Well, I always thought that the Lannister army was in King's Landing. Because it makes sense. Yeah, and they're all there, I guess, all the time, right? The Lannister guards. So but, it's just, know. it just to me was just a very fairly well, bizarre. I guess they were, because they went up to um, the Blackfish, right? Um, the Lannister army marched yeah. on the Riverlands, so I guess they went back to there. But so yeah. it's, it's just, I mean, one thing I did like as well. It's not for nothing. Um, a finer point about it, I think, was um, that little interaction between John and Daenerys, where he kind of turns around and goes, "Your father burned my grandfather yeah. at the stake." And it kind of made me think, actually, like, you know what, we go through all this whole Game of Thrones nonsense and it seems really shocking, but in that universe, this is kind of like, this is just what happens in each generation. It's just think, over and over and yeah, over yeah. again. You wonder why everyone's alive still. But, but, you know. but it's interesting because both John and Daenerys are people who don't, who don't put a primacy on the, the punishing the son for the sins of the father, yeah. as we've seen John forgive the Houses of Umber, as we've seen um, Daenerys do in Marine, and though eventually she gave that up. Yeah. But it's it's interesting that in terms of in Game of Thrones parlance, they're both wheel breakers. So maybe that whole, this happens in every generation, thing's probably going to end. Yeah. Hopefully. Hopefully, we'll see. Anyway, uh, I think that's all we have time for. So anything to add, Mia? Um, please email me if you want to talk. Please give us some um, Fintax and regulations. <laughs> it's it's Amelia.david at incisivemedia.com. We'll gladly talk to you. 
Excellent. Well, Amelia, thank you for being here. And I'm not anti-Malakian. I'm James Rundle. So I will see you guys next week. <laughs>